Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Jamie Dawn. And I'm Heather Strong Moore. Today, we are in part two of our episodes about women in the early church. Last episode, we were exclusively in the book of Acts. And today, we'll spend a little more time in Acts before shifting to Paul's greetings at the end of his letter to the Romans. So we'll see a very clear picture of Paul regularly collaborating with and co-laboring with women in his ministry. These passages are such an important addition to his teachings on the role of women in the church and paint a much bigger picture of how his ministry played out and who was partnering with him. These are some iconic women in the faith, and we can't wait to uncover their stories today. Let's dig in. So in the last episode, we looked at women in general in Acts and multiple apostles interacting with them. Then today, we'll look at women that collaborated with Paul specifically. One, because they're awesome. So I don't think you need any more reason than that. But two, because it's really crucial for continuing to interpret his teachings on the role of women in the church. They really need to be held side by side because otherwise we get a very truncated opinion or perspective of how he viewed women. And they also have to be held side by side because there's a danger that you could think he's just a big hypocrite. (laughs) And as we talked about in our previous episodes about his teachings, we don't think that's the case. And so they really do need to be paired together when we're making sense of his teachings. That's so good. I think one of the things that I love about reading about these women is that, and it's just kind of an invitation for you to read along with us. Cause I think we get really excited about them. And you, if you're not reading along with us, you might go back and just see like, Oh, it's just their name mentioned. Like we don't know anything else about them, but for me, there's something so beautiful about that to know that God took note of these stories to write their names down forever. That even when we don't know uh, necessarily a ton about their stories, we know that they continued. We know that there's a lot um, of reason that their names are mentioned, but it's such an encouragement to me that you don't have to do something flashy. You don't have to like be the most, you know, famous Instagram preacher or something like that to, for the Lord to celebrate and take note of your work um, and the ways that you are partnering with God and with his people. And I think there's something so rich about just pausing over these names and saying, there's a reason these are here. And there's something just so wonderful about taking note and celebrating that they, their names are mentioned for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good reminder, right? Cause I do think sometimes we may feel like that's inadequate or like, okay, that's cool, but what did they do? And for the record, there's plenty of men who are named just their names and we don't have more information about them either. So this, that's not unique to women, but even just thinking about a letter and letters were not easy or cheap to send. Like someone had to just carry it themselves (laughs) and like risk shipwreck and piracy and robbery. And it just wasn't easy to send mail around the, in the first century. And so it's a lot of work to send a letter to someone. And so to therefore 
take the time in that letter to then also make space on parchment that wouldn't have been cheap or easily acquired to name these people specifically to make sure that they heard from Paul specifically. That's a lot of intentionality. And that communicates a lot of value for sure on his part that he wanted them to know. First of all, he remembers their names to start with. And maybe that in and of itself needs more just celebration because he's traveling a ton. He's meeting a ton of people all the time. I've been, I've worked on three different campuses in campus ministry and I'll forget names. I'll, I'll be like, was that, which campus was that student on? Or like, I'll kind of like confuse it in my mind just from three different locations. And Paul has been to a ton and again, has met a ton of people. And I think that actually is pretty elaborate for him to be like, oh, here's the people I remember clearly that I worked with, that I just really appreciated their input and their investment with me. So that I think is very sweet and really special that he does want to name people and wants them to know he remembers them and values their time together. I think if I put myself in the shoes of the women in particular, like there's something amazing about that, knowing that they're on the other side of that, there was an experience where they had an interaction with Paul. And I just think about like, they probably felt very cared for. Um, and to, like you were saying, the fact that he remembers their names afterwards, um, is not certainly not insignificant. Um, there's been plenty of times where I've met, you know, maybe a leader who's like well-respected and, I have said to people as a way of describing like, oh, I actually like really felt appreciated by them. Like, I'll, I will say something, this is such a low bar, but I'll be like, yeah, he looked me in the eyes. Like he asked me a question about myself and that's a, like a really sad low bar. Yeah. But to me, <laughs> the fact that that is something that's like noteworthy says a lot. The fact that I have met other men in leadership in the church and outside the church where, you know, they don't give you the time of day, um, uh, talking to the person, mm -hmm. the man standing right next to you or something. And so I just think about what that would be like to be one of those women that, you know, maybe describe Paul afterwards of like, yeah, he looked me in the eye. We talked about what God was doing through our house church and like, to have those kind of experiences with Paul where afterwards, you know, maybe a woman was talking to Priscilla afterwards and they were like, yeah, I got to meet Paul finally. Like, you're right. He is legit. Like he did, he cared about what I was saying and really heard me when I was telling those stories about what God was doing. And I think there's something really like special about pausing and thinking about what it would be like to be in the shoes of those women and men. Oh, yeah, that's so true. And is, yeah, just a sweet picture when you actually think about it. Because he's not in the way that we would have now. He's not a celebrity pastor, but he like is traveling a ton. Like he has a heavy burden, I think maybe is a better way to think about it. Less, less celebrity and more just like a heavy mission that he has to spread the gospel in like the entire world as they knew it at the time. And to work with a ton of people, to invest in a ton of people, 
to try to raise up other leaders. So it wasn't just all on his shoulders. And that just is a lot of responsibility. And so I also think, I think about the ways that for him, he might be encouraging himself by naming all of them and being like, Mm -hmm. look at all these people who are in this with me, that I'm not actually doing this alone. This isn't just all on me. All of these people are super invested and have encountered Christ in a life-changing way. And they're in it with me. That's really powerful because it's so easy in ministry to feel alone. And especially I think as a head pastor or just in the role that he's in, it's very easy to think it's all on you. So I think it's not only encouraging for them. I could see it be real being really grounding for him to remind himself of like, look what God's doing. Look at all the people God is putting around me and raising up in every place. The gospel's going forth. This is the Lord's doing. And I'm part of something bigger than just me. Mm, I'm feeling that so much of just those moments where you need that reminder of like, I, I might feel alone, but I'm actually not. Um, and to think about like, that the way that Paul, I think it says something about Paul to speak to like the earlier, uh, mention of like, is he a hypocrite? Is he just like a jerk who changes his mind and stuff? Um, I think it speaks to the character of Paul, that there's a diversity of people that he is connected to. And that, you know, it's easy sometimes to say like, I'm going to encourage myself by reminding myself of all the people who are like me, who think like me, but Paul is, has a diversity of people that he is surrounding himself with, who he's encouraging himself and each other in. And I think that speaks to the type of leader that he is and the kind of character um, that we get a picture of throughout his ministry. And I, I think there's something really fun about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and we'll keep unpacking that a little more when we get to the Romans greeting. So, all right. So we're going to spend a little more time in Acts first, like we said, and the much anticipated conversation around Priscilla is where we're going first. So we're going to be in Acts 18, and there's three different uh, mentions of Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. Some translations will translate her name Prisca. Not totally sure why. It's the same person. It's Yeah, just different versions of the same name. So if in your translation, you're seeing Prisca, it's the same person. It's a woman. Also, Aquila is a man. (laughs) Sometimes that wasn't always clear to me. Um, And it's clearer when you read it in Acts that it says specifically they're a husband and wife pair. Uh, But that's who we're talking about. So we're going to be in Acts 18. So I'm going to read first couple of verses and we'll skip around a little bit to keep talking about their story. So starting in Acts 18 verse one, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So it keeps talking some about his ministry there in that region. And we're skipping down to 18 and 19. So he's planning to move on 
and go to the next area. And it says in verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencrie because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with Jews. So we'll pause there to talk a little bit about their relationship at this point. So he meets them in Corinth. They have the same profession. They're all tent makers. And so they start working together and they start doing ministry together to the point where when they, when Paul goes to leave Corinth to do another missionary journey, he's like, hey, do you guys want to come with me and help me plant a church in Ephesus? And so that's basically what he does when he leaves them in Ephesus, that would that would indicate that he's equipping them to lead the church there and to keep doing evangelism and ministry there. So we're seeing them all work together as a group and they are always mentioned together. There's literally no individual mention of Aquila. <laughs> like they're just always mentioned together. They're always working together. They're with Paul together. Uh, and so this is just painting an important picture that they are friends for quite a while and collaborators for quite a while, probably around a year and a half, which is not a small amount of time, especially when Paul is sometimes only staying in one place for a few weeks and then moving on. This is a pretty extended stay for him. And so they just have a pretty extensive shared history and partnership in the gospel. I am so struck uh, this time reading through this about the fact that they're in Ephesus that like part of their leadership is there because of what we talked about a few weeks ago of the culture of Ephesus. So like we've talked about how the women there were a part of cult worship. And so they had to make sure to separate themselves. And I love that Paul was like, you know, what will really help them do this is a woman who is teaching so well. And so there's just this really clear picture of like, it's not that he didn't want women to be a part of the church in Ephesus. It's that he wanted them to really be set apart for the sake of the gospel and to be very clearly consecrated for the sake of Jesus. And so to help them do that, he sent Priscilla and Aquila. And I think I'm so struck by that. Um, and I just, I love that it points to Paul knows culture really well. Like we see that in other places and he gets what it is to make sure that the gospel like is meeting the questions of that culture. And so I love that as a leader, he was like, I know how to meet the questions of this culture with a really good female teacher. Yeah, that's super cool. And I even was thinking about Ephesians five with the marriage passage and is he potentially having them in mind as he's describing to them, here's what it looks like to have a marriage that mirrors the love of Christ to the world. I mean, he would know their relationship up close. Like they have all lived in close quarters. They've worked closely together and he would know their example. And even like, as he's writing about that to the church in Corinth, where they were all in Corinth together, we don't know for sure if he's having them in mind, but it's very possible that they are embodying 
that kind of partnership in the gospel in their marriage and that he's then giving, leaving them there as an example to that community that really needs that kind of role model as they're trying to figure out how to do that faithfully. Oh, I'm so, that's really precious to me because of what you said, like that he, I mean, it, it makes it clear that they are in some ways working together in their tent making and in sharing the gospel. So like a lot of rubbing shoulders together. So he, like you said, he just would have really known their relationship. And um, yeah, I think that's really precious to think about. Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah. I had never put that together. So I'm so glad you mentioned that to like tie his teachings in those places to the example that would have been set by these people he's partnering in the gospel with is so sweet. Uh, and it, it just is one of those moments where like, it's not to say that unmarried people have no imagination for marriage. Um, and also for him to be able to describe the mystery of the union of marriage and the way that that parallels the church like you have to see some good examples of that in order to have an imagination for the beauty of that mystery. And obviously that's Holy Spirit inspired as well. But I think Holy Spirit could have inspired him as he's watching his friends interact and see like, oh, this reminds me of the mystery that we're united to Christ. And so, yeah, there that's just so precious. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. Okay, so continuing in Acts 18, so Paul has left them there to lead and build up the church. And so, um, let me see. I'm just wanting to make sure, yep, that I'm picking up in the right place. So picking up in verse 24 here, still in chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man at with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So Apollos is a pretty big figure in the early church, Paul talks about him. I'm trying to remember which letter it's in where he kind of is saying there's some, there's almost like competition between him and Apollos that other people are generating. And he's squashing that essentially <laughs> that he's like, some people say they follow Apollo. Some say they follow Paul. He's like, that's dumb. That's not what any of this is about, but Apollos becomes a very effective apostle and leader and missionary in the early church. And Paul mentions him multiple other times. And so here we see him coming to Ephesus. He knows about Jesus, but it seems like he doesn't know yet about the resurrection and about the coming of the Holy Spirit specifically, that he's kind of preaching a baptism of repentance, but not um, a baptism of receiving the Holy Spirit after conversion. And so what's interesting is Priscilla and Aquila invite him over and it just says they instruct him in understanding the gospel more fully. It's not Priscilla makes food while Aquila talks to <laughs> Apollos. 
it's the two of them. And it just seems very clear that they're both instructing him in the gospel, which means that Priscilla is exerting authority over a man (laughs) and is like speaking with authority, teaching with authority for the sake of the gospel going forth. And so when we've seen Paul's teachings that seem like he's saying women can never exert authority over men, and yet we have this very prominent and like come endorsed woman that Paul has worked with and loves and greets warmly in four different letters, she's exerting authority over man. So there just has to be more going on as we've talked about in Paul's teachings than this prescriptive everywhere, always women are never to have this authority because here we have one of his friends and colleagues exerting it in a very positive and healthy way. That's so good. And I just think it's important to say here, and we'll see it again, um, in Romans, but there's a reason, like, it's actually very significant that Priscilla is mentioned first. And so, um, like that's a part of that time period is that if you would mention the woman's name first, like you wouldn't really do that. And the law of first mention would be like that the first person mentioned means that person is kind of more significant. Um, and so in my mind, there's reason to think like maybe like Aquila is the one who is kind of tagging along while Priscilla is the main teacher. Um, I think there's a lot of reason from the way that Paul mentions them pretty regularly that Priscilla really is the one who is the teacher who's able to correct some teaching that might be good, but like not deep enough. It doesn't give the full picture of the gospel. And I think that's, I've just, I've always loved that about her, that there's something about the way that she understands the gospel that invites people into the depths of God. And I think there's an invitation for us as um, anyone who teaches the Bible, but especially as women um, to like, take that invitation to say, I want to know what the full picture is. Um, And I think it's significant because so much of the first Corinthians passages around women um, are around spiritual gifts as well. And so the fact that Priscilla is able to say, like, I'm going to help you understand that the Holy Spirit is a, you can't preach the gospel without also including the Holy Spirit, um, feels important after thinking through the way that spiritual gifts are such a significant part of maybe why women are supposed to stay silent in the church in Corinth for a time. Um, And so the fact that Priscilla is able to bring some correction into like the Holy Spirit is vital to our understanding of the gospel, um, I think is really important there. Yeah, I love that. That's really beautiful. And as we're thinking about how was Paul telling women to exert authority or not? As we have talked about, it's our belief that he's telling them don't dominate, don't exert power over. And I think Priscilla is living out really healthy authority and rightly ordered authority where she has more knowledge. She has more revelation than Apollos does. And so she's passing that on to him in a way that is necessary and important. 
and she's empowering him to then partner in the gospel with them. So I think it's really lovely. She's not like, hey, you big dummy, or she's not like, you don't get it, or she's not being weird and competitive with him. I think she is really living out what Paul was teaching about partnership in the gospel and that we're called to do this together side by side. And so she's giving him very important and necessary corrective and instruction and doing that in a way that then causes more people to know Christ and causes the gospel to go forth in a more powerful way. So that's beautiful. That's, I think, the goal, again, that she's not like putting him down. She's not degrading him in some kind of way. She's exerting her authority in a way that builds up the kingdom. I think like when I look at how Apollos is described, like you were saying, she's not saying like, Hey dummy, come over here so I can like help you understand this better. We get a description of Apollos. that's really positive that he is like eloquent, competent in the scriptures that he had been instructed and that he's fervent in spirit. Like he is zealous. And so they're like, this is important that he gets a fuller teaching because he's, he's going to do amazing work. So let's make sure it's like the fullest picture of the gospel. And I just think about what it probably, it was probably Luke having a conversation with Priscilla and Aquila about their, like that moment for him to record it in the book of Acts. And I think there's something kind of maternal about that leadership to be able to say, listen, he was so zealous. It was amazing. He was Mm -hmm. really eloquent. He taught the scriptures really well. Um, but he just was missing this one piece. And so we brought him to our house and we told him like what he was missing and to think about the kind of leadership that that was to like describe it in that way to Luke probably, um, is I think very, it's so pastoral, but there's something very maternal about it when I think about it. Yeah. That's super sweet. That's so interesting. Cause yeah, it probably was them talking about it. Cause the only other person that would know about that conversation is Apollos. And I don't think he's that arrogant that he's like <laughs> describing himself in the third person of like, was so articulate, <laughs> you know? Like that would be weird if Apollos is talking about himself that way. <laughs> like the, the way that it's described is someone else describing mm-hmm. him and then their conversation. So yeah, I love that. I think that's really beautiful that, and just a beautiful example of hers and Aquila's attitude towards other people that it's just really positive. It's really affirming and they're building up other leaders in the church. That's mm-hmm. lovely. That's the goal. And we see it bear fruit, like, cause like you said, Apollos is well known. Um, and I think there's something about that for me. That's so encouraging of thinking about just the risk and the courage that it takes sometimes to say, actually, like, I think, I think I have to like, you know, teach this man that they might be missing something. I think we see that as like, oh, of course they would do that. But I think it's courageous to be like, this guy's zealous and he's doing good stuff, but we see that there's something important that he's missing. And so we want to help him preach a fuller gospel 
Um, I think there's something really courageous about that. And so for God to honor that with a really wide reaching ministry of Apollos, I think is significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Okay. We want to talk a little bit about Priscilla's role in the authorship of the book of Hebrews, which is a little bit of a mystery book. It doesn't have a stated author. So there's just kind of different speculation that's grounded in, you know, historical and archaeological and like literary basis. So there's a couple of different theories about who authored the book of Hebrews. So Jamie, do you want to start by sharing the theory that perhaps it was Priscilla and or like perhaps with Aquila? Yeah. So when you think about the book of Hebrews, a lot of times I think people have attributed it to Paul, just that was like kind of a basic, he wrote everything else probably, you know, this is very deep teaching, but when you look at what's included in Hebrews, it doesn't sound like Paul. It's not the same kind of teaching. It obviously is the same like gospel, of course, but the way that the things are drawn out is very deep it, and it just is different. It's not Romans, I would say, is like Paul's kind of deep theological book. And it doesn't read the same as Hebrews. So I think to say it's Paul is honestly just a little bit lazy. Um, and so we don't really know who has written it. Um, but there's a lot of scholars who would say probably Priscilla. And I think when we see the kind of teaching that she does with Apollos of correcting and kind of adding to helping him understand the fuller picture of the gospel. I think that's what the book of Hebrews does. Um, and so I think there's a lot of reason to say this sounds like the kind of teaching that she did. Um, and I, I will be honest and say for a long time, I only heard people kind of like uh, liberal scholars who maybe wouldn't have the same value of like the word of God um, say that Priscilla wrote it. And probably within like the last five years, I was having a conversation with um, a woman who I really respected. And she was like, well, I definitely think Priscilla wrote Hebrews. And I was like, you do me too. But I only like, it was someone who um, was definitely theologically just very grounded. And so it felt like new permission for me to say, I know there's definitely conservative scholars who are saying, you know, not in a way that's reaching, but in a way that's saying, how have we made decisions in that kind of like, we've added layers onto things. And so we've decided, well, of course, like a man wrote every other book of scripture, which is why I think it's important that we've drawn out women writing psalms and mm -hmm. uh, songs to the Lord because we do have examples of things that have been written and or sung by women um, being included in the scriptures. And so it's not, I, I think to say nothing from a woman is included in scripture is just not accurate. Um, so I think that's part of what has been really rich about kind of uncovering some of those pieces where women's words have been included has been 
it kind of adds to the credibility of Priscilla writing Hebrews for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think it's really interesting. And yeah, totally agree. I just, there's no way Paul wrote it to me because why would he randomly not identify himself when he identifies himself everywhere else? I just don't think that makes sense. Um, So another theory that I've heard that still actually relates to Priscilla is that Apollos wrote Hebrews. And there's some basis for that in terms of, I heard this from a seminary professor in one of my classes and I been a while. I don't remember all the details of why he said that. There's some elements where I think early manuscripts of Hebrews were all located around Alexandria. So it's some like geographic location stuff of where Apollos was from and where he spent a lot of time. So even if it was Apollos, it's still heavily influenced by Priscilla's teachings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That like, and there's specifically uh, parts of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews that talk about Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit that he would have, if it's him, he would have learned that first from Priscilla and probably most thoroughly from Priscilla. So either way you slice it, whether it's Priscilla herself, whether it's Apollos, there's a lot of evidence to say that she was involved and or directly wrote the book of Hebrews, which I just think is really powerful and something that should be highlighted and really celebrated. Yeah, I think I, I love either of those options. And I think it's important to say like the fact that we don't know when most of the other books we do know should strike curiosity in us that we would say, I wonder why we don't like have authorship to this. And perhaps it's because you know, if it would have said, I, Priscilla and Aquila write this book, then maybe it wouldn't have had the credibility that it needed to. Um, And so I think either way, the fact that we don't know should at least stir a curiosity in us of like, why don't we know that? And what are the possibilities for it of maybe collaboration that like all three of them got together and wrote this together to make sure that other people weren't in the same position as Apollos of not knowing the fullness of the gospel. Um, but there's, there's something about that mystery that I think it says a lot about like biblical scholarship in some ways to me that people have for a while said, oh, it probably was Paul just because we like needed to have an answer to something rather Mm -hmm. than leaving it at we, at the end of the day, we don't know. And so I think it's a really fun idea and I kind of believe it's Priscilla. I can't wait to find out. Hopefully (laughs) I hope she's like part of my greeting team or something. Right. In the new (laughs) Jerusalem. Here we are. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) You were right. (laughs) love that so yeah again no matter what it's just fun food for thought and there's significant scholarship and credibility to indicate that again she was involved in one way or another yeah i think so too yeah all right so moving on to romans 16 so 
Speaking of Paul, so as we've seen in his letters, he'll usually open them with a like welcome, essentially, and identify himself and say who he's writing to, et cetera. And maybe some people who are with him who are also writing or contributing to it. And then he'll typically end his letters with final greetings to say, like, greet these people in the community that I'm writing to, et cetera. And to our detriment, as the modern church, we usually skim over those. <laughs> and especially in Romans 16, at the end of Romans, it's the longest greetings of any of his letters. Often it's like a handful of verses. In this, it's a whole chapter. And so there's also probably um, epistemological reasons that he's doing that, that it's actually probably part of the letter itself in terms of what he's trying to communicate and help them understand that who he's greeting and the extent to which he's greeting them is he's trying to show them a picture of the church of the body of Christ and reminding them of like, this is who all makes up the church. And it's important that you all work together and recognize each other as co-laborers in the faith. So it's probably not just an accident or random, but it's his longest greeting. It's probably for teaching purposes. But so when we do when we just kind of are like a oh, book over it's the greetings we really do ourselves a disservice because we're missing out on who he's working with and how he describes his relationships with them so Romans 16 gives us a really in-depth look at the women that Paul is partnering with in ministry so there's several different women that are named here among them Priscilla and Aquila so we'll read it we'll mention we'll take note of the mention of priscilla and aquila there and we'll talk about that so we kind of conclude our discussion on priscilla and then we'll dig into the other women who are named so jamie's gonna read romans 16 and there's multiple greetings of women throughout it we're gonna start with verses one through seven and then talk about that and we'll then pull out a few others further down but we're gonna start with one through seven I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancreae. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but for all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for him, are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet And Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. All right. So again, we're going to start first by noting his greeting to Priscilla and Aquila. Um, here again, he greets Priscilla first. There's a couple other greetings. I misspoke. I said that he greets them in four letters. He greets them in three total. So he also greets them at the end of first Corinthians and he greets them at the end of second Timothy, both, um, letters that are talking about the role of women in the church, which is fascinating. Um, not second Timothy, first Timothy is that what talks about women specifically, but obviously he's writing to the same communities. So they would have been pairing those letters together. So it just should be noted that like, as he has, where his most seemingly stringent and intense teachings are about women in the church, he ends them by greeting Priscilla 
who is his colleague in ministry. So that in and of itself ought to be really noted and I think speaks volumes. So he greets them in three different letters. So we see um, we see them mentioned four different times. So they're talked about in the book of Acts and then in Romans, 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. Um, and it's kind of a little bit half and half of who is greeted first. Sometimes it's Aquila, um, sometimes it's Priscilla. So it seems like if nothing else, there is this clear sense in Paul's mind that they're pretty equal and pretty interchangeable in a way <laughs> um, that he kind of goes back and forth, even in his own mind of who he thinks of first and who he greets first, which I think is very sweet. Like to me, it just indicates that he sees them as a team and mm-hmm. that he thinks about them together equally and like with equal honor, not just one or the other. Yeah, I think there's something so beautiful to me about him saying they risk their lives for me and for all the churches of the Gentiles that he's recognizing like this has been a costly pursuit for them and it matters that they have not stopped like that they have not shrunk back and um and I think that's where we miss out if we aren't reading these because reading it for me I'm like man that's I love that that's the cost of preaching the gospel for them and that I get to be reminded of that and encouraged of them risking their lives for Paul and the kind of, um, I mean, he acknowledges that it's also was for the churches, um, but I think speaks to the relationship that they had as well. Yeah. And is definitely commending them highly with that statement of like, they've risked their lives for me and we all owe them a debt of gratitude that he's really calling everyone to be like, Oh snap, Priscilla and Aquila are kind of all stars. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. we all are indebted to them in the faith because of their sacrifices and their risks have allowed the gospel to go forth in powerful ways. So I think that's beautiful that he's saying like, it's not just my ministry that you've all benefited from it's the work that they've done with me and by themselves has been tremendous in the cause of the gospel. So then he also says, Oh, go ahead, Jamie. Oh, I was just going to say the fact that he says the church that meets in their house. Um, and that it's another reminder to us of that's not a small thing. That's actually a really important thing. Um, and that it, kind of has a life of its own in Paul's mind that he's like, greet them, reminding people of how significant they are and like that they are to be honored. And then he says, greet their church as well. Um, And I think, yeah, just points to Lydia that we were talking about last week of the, the ways in which that can seem very small and kind of like, she's just, hosting a Bible study in her house and making Mm -hmm. the treats for it, but she's also probably leading it. And, um, so yeah, the fact that the church that meets in their house is mentioned reminds us of the way that the church was gathering in that time. Exactly. Yeah. That's in verse five. I think that's so huge because it's giving us this picture of we know they're leaders, 
And like when they invite Apollos to their home, it's to give him instruction in the word, in the gospel. And so they're and like, that's giving us a clearer picture that as we're seeing other women named as churches meeting in their homes, that it's very likely indicating that they are either leaders or co-leaders of those churches and exerting authority in, in those contexts. So yeah, so this is a really important window into what that means when Paul says the church that meets in their home. Yeah, that's good. So backtracking slightly. So we want to talk about Phoebe. She's also a really interesting all-star and really interesting figure. So she's described as a deacon. Paul calls her a deacon. Some translations might say deaconess which is fine. Like, that's not bad, but you could kind of take from that, that like, oh, she's a female deacon, which maybe means she's only doing women's ministry. I think perhaps that's what people would extrapolate from that translation. And the, the Greek word is diakonos and it's gender neutral. It's just one word. (laughs) There aren't two, it's not gender specific. And there aren't two versions of it based on whether it's talking about a man or a woman. It's just the same word for everybody. And Paul uses it to describe himself all the time. Like literally in almost every single letter, he uses that word to describe himself. He describes Timothy that way. He describes Apollos that way. He describes Jesus that way. He uses that word to talk about Jesus. And so it's also often translated as servant or minister. So when we see Paul say like, I, a servant of Christ, et cetera, et cetera, it's likely that same word, diakonos. So it's a word that's used for people who are serving in a leadership role in the church. It's the same word that we talked about in first Timothy three as well. So where it would be easy to see some gender discrepancies there, um, Phoebe is described using the same language that the way that we have it almost seems to exclude women. And yet Phoebe is described as embodying that role. Right, exactly. And it says that she's delivering the letter and he's like commending her to them. So he's co-signing her as a person. (laughs) He's like, this is Phoebe. She's great. She's coming on my behalf. Um, I'm I'm just going to reread verse two because it's really interesting. He says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you for she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. So he's really painting this clear picture of her having a key role. It's more than her just handing over a letter and then leaving. He's saying like, give her any help she may need, which means that she's there doing stuff that could need the assistance of the church that it's very likely she's fundraising for Paul. And the person also who would be delivering the letter would also be the one responsible for answering questions about it, for kind of helping walk them through it. So she's also very likely exerting spiritual authority and just spiritual wisdom to the church in Rome as they're making sense of his letter, um, that she's kind of helping them unpack what it means for them. I think that verse that you reread is such a good example of what it looks like for Paul to be a partner, like using his privilege well, who is 
exalting, like he's elevating Phoebe by, and you just, the way I read it, it does not feel like paternalistic or like, guys, make sure you listen to her, even though she's a woman. Um, (laughs) It just is like, listen, I want to make sure you understand the amazing person that I sent to you. And I want to make sure that you hear what she has to say with the full weight that you would give to me, basically. And I think there's something about that for me that is such a picture of what it looks like when men and women partner in the gospel well um, and elevate one another and use their positions of authority to um, invite other people into that as well. And I think their partnership in that one little verse feels so special and like there it to me it's so clear that they're equals yeah and he's saying many people have benefited from her including himself so he's kind of describing her in the same way that he's describing priscilla and aquila of like i'm indebted to them they've gone to bat for me they've protected me they've encouraged me they've given me the support that i needed and He's really showing this, I think, very sweet posture of humility and appreciation that he's not kind of self-aggrandizing and like, oh, yeah, they gave me the help I needed, which I definitely deserve. (laughs) I'm not going (laughs) to think twice about, you know, I think it's I appreciate that Paul, I think, is just very grateful and has this humble spirit towards these people of acknowledging they didn't have to do this. And they did. They've been a benefactor to me. They risked their lives for me. And because of that, I love them. I appreciate them. And I want you to do the same. So I think that's really beautiful. And like across the ages, he's telling us that, that like we, as the modern church, owe them a great debt. We, as the modern church have benefited from the foundation that they laid. And that's making me really emotional. I think that's really powerful and special we tend to assume like that's only for the readers of the letter at the time. And yet we like, we will apply the rest of the letter to ourselves. <laughs> so why not this part too? Like, why not apply this exhortation to us of acknowledging he's commending her to us <laughs> um, and we owe them a great debt of gratitude and we stand on the shoulders of giants. I just think that's really beautiful. Uh, I love that. Even thinking about um, just all of these, like you were saying, like Priscilla and Aquila, all the churches of the Gentiles, like, Oh, that's us. That's us. (laughs) Um, yeah, I just, I, it makes it just so noteworthy of like, again, it's worth spending time reading these diving into like, what does it mean that Paul actually mentions them? And what can we glean from their stories, even the little bits that we have from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else about Phoebe? Okay. So she's a great. So in verse six, I believe we see him say, greet Mary who worked very hard for you or who was labored for you. So that word that he's using that worked very hard or labored for you, he uses that word all the time to describe his work in the gospel. So here again, it's not this sort of condescending or paternalistic of like, she's worked really hard, <laughs> like as best as she could with her, her feeble feminine ability. <laughs> he's like, 
He's saying like she busted her butt for you guys in the way that I have also busted my butt constantly <laughs> for Christ. Um, and this is what's interesting. So he uses this term about himself all the time. And then in the, in the greetings here, he actually only uses them to describe every time he uses it, it's to describe women who are working with him in the faith, which is fascinating. And I don't think you can make the case of like, oh, it's therefore only about women's work or women's ministry. Cause again, he says it about himself the rest of the time. So it seems like an intentional elevation that he's giving them of saying like, in the same way that I labor for you in the gospel, these women are laboring with you in the gospel. And we'll read their other, their, the other women who are mentioned. There's three other women of whom he uses that same phrase of they've worked hard for you. They've labored for you uh, and have worked side by side with me and others in the gospel. That's so interesting. And yeah, like you said, I mean, we see that a lot. Like Paul regularly is saying it's part of him sharing his love for the church um, when he says that. And so I think for him to use that word about these women is speaking to like not only their kind of status, but also the heart behind what they're doing. And I think there's something to me that's so precious about that because it seems to me that when he uses that word, it's such a way for him to say like, oh, I just, I long to be with you. I'm, I'm really laboring on your behalf. Um, and for him to say that about someone else, it, I don't think it's him like using that word lightly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he's putting their efforts on par with his. And I, I love what you drew out there, Jamie, that it is always tied to deep love for God's people and deep love for the Lord. And so I think this is another expression of appreciation and honor of saying like, in the same way that I am so compelled by the love of Christ to pour my life out for the church, these women are experiencing that and exhibiting that as well. Yeah. Uh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I just, I hope that y'all are feeling a, like an honor and a gentleness from Paul in this passage that we just, I think have a really hard time imagining or associating with him because of all these other passages that we've discussed at length. Uh, and so I, I just, yeah, I hope this is helping us reframe a little bit of just his attitude and his heart. Cause I do just see so much, so much gentleness and respect and and love and mutuality in, in these verses. Mm -hmm. So continuing verse seven is very interesting. And here's why <laughs> he says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. So Andronicus is a man. Junia is a woman. And this is a woman who he's describing in such glowing terms. This is, again, one of the longer verses where he's really describing that they were imprisoned for the gospel, which would mean that they were high profile. You're not imprisoned if you're just kind of doing your thing, um, but you're imprisoned if you're probably preaching, if you have some kind of public just like movement for the gospel, um, if you're leading in some way. 
and that he says they are outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. So in order to be considered an apostle, the kind of requirements that Paul himself talked about is that normally you would have seen Jesus firsthand, that you would have learned from Jesus directly during his ministry. Paul talks about in first Corinthians 15, that he says like, last of all, I am one of the apostles. I'm least among the apostles. And I think it's partly an expression of humility, but also literally he came to Christ late and he did see Jesus because Jesus appeared to him in a vision, um, at, at his conversion, but he didn't directly learn from Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so Paul is actually fairly quick to give honor and respect to people that did, who did walk with Christ and learn from him. And so usually the term apostle is pretty specific. Now we do use it a little bit more broadly, depending in different denominations and traditions. Some don't really use it at all. <laughs> um, but normally, especially at this time that Paul's writing, it's about people who were kind of specifically commissioned by Jesus and who directly learned from him and were then commissioned into ministry by him and who were teachers. I don't think there's any apostles who weren't teachers and leaders. So that's a really big endorsement and a really big description that a woman is an apostle and that Paul is just talking about her in glowing terms. Here's what's interesting. Depending on your translation and when it was printed, for a long time, the word, the name Junia was translated Junius. And that's a masculine translation of the name. Here's why that's problematic. Junia is a Latin name. When it's translated into the Greek, they tra- Junius is like a Greek masculine form but that name doesn't exist in the masculine form. So it's just literally impossible. Junius is not a real name. It would be like my name, Heather, like them trying to make it like Heathren <laughs> for a man. Like that's not a name. <laughs> that's not a name that exists for men. <laughs> Maybe we should get it started, but right now. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> If you're in the baby naming process, you want to name your son after me. I would welcome that. <laughs> Not opposed. Young Hedrin. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> all that to say, Junius is a made up name. So it's actually had to have been a deliberate choice by Bible translators. Perhaps it started as a mistake. And like, it was a typo, but it's, why would it be a typo of like, oh, we're going to write it this way in a, a name that doesn't exist. So it was probably, unfortunately, an intentional decision by Bible translators to make it in the masculine form because they were uncomfortable or just disbelieving that a woman could be an apostle. So either they didn't like it and they deliberately changed it, or they just were like, oh, I don't see how that could be real. It must have been a man. We'll kind of make it sound masculine. So one is a little more nefarious. One is maybe a little bit more benign, but either way, they changed it. And so for a long time, people thought Junius is a man. And now, thankfully, with more modern translations, they're correcting that 
most of the time. So now it's Junia, which is a woman. Uh, but I think it's pretty bogus that for a long time, this female apostle was really erased from scripture. Yeah, it's it's just so wild to think like that that wasn't even a thing. It, and it's important to note, like, that's not in any ancient manuscript. So it's not like, well, one of them had this. And so we just decided to go with that one. That's not a thing. Um it didn't happen until later. And even the translations, it didn't happen until later. Most like very early translations, um, it was still Junia. And it's interesting to note what was happening around the time period of when that shift really started to happen. And it was in like the 1890s, 1880s. And, um, you know, most of us, if we learned about the suffrage movement, learned about it for like maybe an afternoon in school, um, unless you were like a history major. Uh, so we just think, you know, that happened for like a couple of days. They had like cute marches in front of the White House and in England. Um, but it was it, decades long of conversations and a movement. And so um, when these translations were happening, in the late 1800s, that was a part of the societal conversation was around women in government. And there was just this kind of very clear, intentional pooling of the Bible to support the fact that women shouldn't be a part of that. I actually was reminded of this quote um, from someone who was an American theologian and minister and he was arguing that women were not created by God or called to govern. We're not created to govern and nor called to do it. Um, they, I guess he probably believed women were created by God. Um, <laughs> he predicted if women started voting, their brains would swell and they would eventually lose their femininity and their morals. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so interesting, <laughs> but it gives us a picture into like the theology of that day that this person was like a very significant theologian and minister who was saying these kinds of things and kind of using this argument of like women aren't created to do that. Like their brains will get too big. What will we do? Um, and that at that same time period were the same kind of questions of translation issues and so they added in that s to try and make it more masculine um and i think that like we have to acknowledge there's real humans doing this work and particularly in older time periods though certainly i don't think people are aware of like the lenses that they have in their social location and how that impacts the way that we do theology and interpretation. But back then in particular, like you think about the King James version, like that's called that for a reason. It's a political <laughs> thing. And so when we think about some of these earlier translations, they were very clearly tied to politics and very clearly tied to a governmental desire for people to have this, which, you know, there's something that we can honor in that that's really good and 
bright and beautiful. And there's something really corrupt about it as well. Um, and so I think the time period of when that came in is certainly worth noting. Um, and I would just say one more thing about that, that I, if you are someone who likes to study theology, you would know the name Wayne Grudem. Um, he did a study and his goal was to say like why maybe Junia wasn't um, a likely name anyhow. And so he was looking in Greek literature and looking for that name. And he said he only found it a few times. I think it's three times. But like Heather said, if you would note, this was a Latin name. So he's right. looking in the wrong places and trying to make a case for something out of like a very poor scholarship. Like that probably <laughs> wouldn't even like that kind of scholarship doesn't pass really in like probably high school papers. And yet somehow he is making a whole case about that not being a name either. So um, we, I think it's worth noting, like, just in case you have ever heard that, uh, this is mm. a Latin name. And so it's not going to be found in like Greek literature. It's going to be found in Latin, <laughs> which is, first of all, good for you, bro. Knock yourself out, whatever. <laughs> um, but like, this is a letter to the Romans. <laughs> the Romans spoke Latin. Uh, <laughs> just like, bruh, what are you thinking? Uh, and like, Paul himself is a Roman citizen also, and like, uses that to his advantage in his ministry. Um, so it's important that there were early Roman apostles who could move freely in the Roman empire and kind of leverage that and use their citizenship to get an entry and like protection from the Roman government. So that's super cool. And that was normal at the time <laughs> that like, you'd be a Roman citizen who is then like encountering Christ and doing gospel ministry. And therefore like your name would be Latin because that's. The language of your empire <laughs> just like dude okay um so a lot has that has truly buried junia through i think the efforts of patriarchy um and i think yeah i just think that's so sus and crazy that the time period in which that first started happening was around women really moving forward and and gaining new just activism and authority and that then forces of patriarchy are trying to suppress that. But, you know, maybe this is a, a helpful reminder that as we approach the midterms this year, have your ice packs ready in case you go vote and your brain starts swelling, you know, just plan ahead, get that a leave. <laughs> you never know what will happen. Oh, good grief. So anyway, Junia, love her, huge icon that has been long buried, and we are happy to uncover her story here. So if your translation um, says, what? what's the other way that it says it? So that she's preeminent among the apostles, or either um, it'll say something that makes it sound more like the apostles really liked Junia. Um, mm -hmm. rather than that she was among the apostles as in like a part of them. Um, and if you're, 
if that strikes your curiosity, we'll link a paper in the show notes that shows why that there's a ton of support that it should be among the apostles, that it's clear that she was an apostle um, and that it's, that's the most accurate and the most historically like credible way of translating that. Mm, Okay. Yeah. That's a good note. All right. So a couple more women that we want to highlight that we mentioned him describing them as working really hard. So verse 12, he says, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. So especially for the first two names, you know, these names aren't familiar to us in our modern English. So we might not know that they're women but they are women and it seems like they're twins. Is that right, Jamie? Yeah, there's like some historical evidence of that. So in the same way that a lot of people like to name their twins kind of, you know, the same first letter of um, their names. I think it's so cute personally. I'm just like, oh, that's really sweet. The twins who are preaching the gospel together. That's terrific. So shout out to any twins that are listening. You've got some, some biblical comrades here. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so both times he describes these three different women and he says they worked hard in the Lord with Persis. He says another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. So Paul is just really acknowledging their labor in the gospel and reminding everyone else of their, their labor in the gospel, which is just really powerful. And then in verse 13, he says, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother who has been a mother to me too. And I just think that's really sweet. I love that language. And as we've talked about biblical mothering and what it looks like to exert God's maternal love and express God's maternal love towards our own children or just to, to those that we are, that are not biological children, but that we are loving as though they were. I think this is so sweet that Paul himself has experienced that of the mother of another member of the church of Rufus loved him as though he was her own son. And I just think that's, that's so special. And it's clear that that really made an impact on him and that he just wants to celebrate the ways that she's cared for him. I think there's something so honoring about that. It brings such dignity to that mothering role that he's sure to include it. And I think we kind of like brush that off so easily sometimes of like the church mothers and kind of, we, we take it so for granted that they're just going to be there. Like we've talked about in other times. And I think for him to not do that, but to say, it matters to me that she has mothered me really well. Mm-hmm. I know. I just think it's really lovely. And then he mentions one other woman, um, actually, uh, yeah, I think he actually mentions a couple women here. I'm trying to make sense of the names. So he's in verse 15, he says, greet Philogus, Julia, which would be a woman's name, mm-hmm. Norris and his sister and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. So just a couple other women here that he's just pointing out. And so it's just painting a, this comprehensive picture that. Paul is collaborating with women that they are playing an important role in the church and it's important enough that he's referencing them. 
And so then I want to point out one other greeting just to that ties in with all of them. So we mentioned that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in two other books. Because I just wanted to note that it's not only in Romans that Paul does this. This is the primary place where he does, but it's not just here. So like we said, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy, Paul greets women. And then in Colossians 4, verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So again, we're seeing a woman who is very likely leading a house church and someone that Paul is building up and encouraging and like sending his appreciation and love for the work that they're doing. So I just think this is so important for us to see that Paul's teachings can feel very harsh and like black and white. And yet we're seeing in his actual practical lived ministry He's collaborating with women all the time and encouraging them in that collaboration and expressing his love and appreciation and honor for the work that they're doing. So there's just so much more that's taking place here in the early church. And if we're not reading Acts and if we're not reading his greetings, we don't get a picture of that. And so I do just think so much of our theology that we've based on some isolated teachings of Paul have been really impoverished because we're not couching it in his wider ministry and his wider writings. Like this is himself saying this, writing this, (laughs) naming these people. It's not just other people. You know, a little bit of Acts is Luke um, just like documenting what's going on. But then in all these greetings, it's Paul himself. He's voluntarily naming them and is voluntarily elevating their profile essentially in the early church. So this is just really giving us a much clearer picture of the real appreciation and respect that Paul has for women who are laboring with him in the gospel. I hope that our listeners would be able to like have that curiosity that is firing right now. Like, I wonder all the places where I haven't noticed, um, who Paul names. Cause I'm thinking, I can't remember now. I'm pretty sure this is in first Corinthians somewhere, um, where he just mentions Chloe's household. And so he's talking basically about like believers in Chloe's house. And that is a female name at that time period as well. Um, and so there's, there's many places where it's clear that Paul is in ministry relationships with women. And we just, we're not often taught to pause and read those names and think about them and say, Oh, who is that? Is that a man or a woman? Um, and so I hope that there's something that causes us to just pause and celebrate those stories. Um, that there's, there's so many people that aren't named in scripture that we have to take it seriously when there are people who are named. And I think this, has been such an invitation to, to do that and to, to really have that curiosity that's firing. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. And again, I hope that this just helps us reframe for anyone that has felt hurt by Paul and just went cringes when they hear his name um, and cringes when some of his writings are brought up. I hope that this evens out some of our experience with him and our perception of him and that we have been able today to receive the gentleness and honor 
and love that he's clearly expressing for his sisters in Christ and who he calls fellow laborers in the gospel. And we hope that this has just given all of us even more role models to emulate and learn from and look up to and feel gratitude for. Um, As Jamie and I were praying, preparing for this episode, I was just really moved by thinking about how we get to honor these women and that we get to encourage y'all to honor them as well and understand what a tremendous and powerful foundation they all laid together that we continue to build on today. And that's just such a beautiful legacy that we get to join and enter into and continue to build and pass on to others as well. And so we hope that this has just been encouraging and fruitful for you as we've uncovered a lot more stories that it helps you continue to uncover your place in God's story. This has been such a good way to uncover those stories. And I, just like you said, Heather, I hope that it encourages all of us to think about the ways that the Lord honors our stories, the way that as we uncover our place in God's story, that he, our names are written in the book of life and that he keeps track of those things. And he honors us, the ways that we are laboring in um, whatever God is calling each of us to. And so I hope that it just brings such dignity and honor to whatever God is calling you to as you uncover your place in God's story. We'd love to hear how uh, this has impacted you. Maybe someone that you have a new favorite Chiro of scripture. Let us know by uh, DMing us on Facebook or Instagram. You can follow us there at Excavate Podcast. And we do have a Patreon community so you can uh, support us. And it's just another way to encourage our content. So thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to digging in soon. Thank you.